1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book News Podcast. Today, we're talking with Chaya Colavelli, the author of this exciting book. And you can tell us the title, Chaya. Uh, It's titled Well-Intentioned Whiteness. I wonder if you could start by telling us a little about yourself and how you got started on this project.
1: Yeah, of course. And um, again, thanks for having me. Um, So I'm currently a senior program officer um, at the Ewing Marion Kauffman Foundation in Kansas City, Missouri. So in my day job, I don't have an academic appointment. Um, But my background is in academia and the birth of this book was in academia. So Um, I was trained in anthropology, cultural anthropology specifically. And so looking at geographic inequity and whiteness in the U S and how that shows up, um, in our cities and much of the book's origins are really deeply personal. Um, it was born out of my dissertation research. Um, so when I, you know, when I grew up, I grew up in farming families. Um, I was born and raised in India in Bangalore, India. And when I moved to the States, um, the white side of my family. Um, they sold at farmers markets. They grew in their backyard. So folks who are really had intimate connections to the land and to food and to seasonality. Right. And so I went to college at University of Kansas um, and was interested in getting linked up into some of those communities since I felt really isolated, you know, from that history that was really important to me. Uh, But when I tried to get involved in local food and farming spaces at the college, it felt really isolating as a person of color. Um, The narratives about farming and agriculture felt like they only reflected a really privileged history and not the experience that was familiar to me. So because of that, I focused my master's and my dissertation work on exploring um, how this looks in one city, right? I wondered if I feel so marginalized within this movement, how do people who are more systemically marginalized feel when presented with white-dominant ideology about food and farming in our cities? So that was the origin of the work and I ended up focusing on Kansas City, Missouri um, for this sort of case study about whiteness and urban agriculture because it's a really racially segregated city and because there's a lot of um, local food movement activity here. So in that work and in that book, I end up looking at the ideology that promotes the movement and then sort of how it affects different sectors and spaces um, uh, around urban farming and how folks of color feel within that space.
0: Can you tell the audience about your research methods?
1: Yeah. So I'm trained as an anthropologist. Um, So the main approach we use is participant observation. Um, and ethnography. So really spending time enmeshed in the communities um, we want to learn about and write about and um, trying to uplift perspectives from those communities rather than our own. So letting research grow out of um, that ground up perspective. So my work took the form of in-depth interviews around 90 in total um, with local food advocates in Kansas City, people who were Thinking about and designing policy around local food systems. Um, it also included interviews with people who are really passionate about local food systems, you know, local chefs and volunteers, people who are really involved in that space. And then also with food insecure folks in communities where there's a lot of local food movement activity, um, primarily black and brown folks um, in food insecure Kansas City communities. Um, so, in depth interviews focus groups with some folks, um, and then a lot of archival research and comparative work with other cities. Um, So the hope was to get a holistic sense of a moment in time and and situate it within history and broader context of other cities that are like Kansas City.
0: You started the book off with a sentence, gardeners dread blight. Tell us what does that mean?
1: Yeah, so blight has a lot of meanings here. I'm not sure how many of your listeners are gardeners, but in gardening circles, blight refers to this sort of virus that shows up as black splotches on your leaves, typically your tomato plants. Um, and when you see it, you know that the soil is contaminated and you can't grow that crop there the next year. Um, you have to rip everything out. You have to cover it up with tarp. It's done. Done deal. Um, you know, it's a toxic soil. Um, But blight is also a really common term in urban planning, and particularly in green urban planning. So developers talk about eliminating urban blight and eyesores all the time. And the historical use of that word also has its origins, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, when the Great Migration brought African Americans to northern cities. In popular politics, people called that a blight, a threat to property values. So the word went from origins as pretty blatantly being like a proxy for race or fear about um, racial integration. Um, And today it functions in much the same way. Um, People, when they say blight, they're often referring obliquely to black areas of the city Um, and without understanding or referencing the histories of that geography that led to that outcome. So I was hoping to highlight that with that opener.
0: Black Kansas City residents, are they interested in green urban development or are they just left out?
1: Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, As I mentioned, you know, a big part of my work was taking this historical scope, which I think is really important. And when you take that historical approach, um, both in Kansas City and I'd imagine elsewhere, you see that the most marginalized individuals have pretty much always been the ones leading in sustainability um, and local small-scale food production, right? Things that we would call green urban development today. And that's often just out of necessity, right? Um, But in today, our cities, like, that can seem flipped because the most marginalized folks, um, uh, black residents at the lowest end of the economic spectrum, they're often working multiple jobs. There's less of this sort of homesteading approach. There's... We see that more often in affluent communities, Um, and we see that history sort of erased, um, and new green projects really only reflect these newer, wider histories. But historically and today, um, black Kansas City residents, particularly really impoverished folks in our city, have been incredibly interested in local food, farming, um, green revitalization, living close to the land, Um, and that just really isn't uplifted in the movement, um, even though that activity is occurring.
0: Now tell the audience about the urban food projects in Kansas City.
1: Right so as I mentioned I picked Kansas City for my research because there's so much um, urban food work happening in the city. So just to give you a high level view of that um, and this I'm primarily talking about what was happening at the time of my research so I think the context is still the same today. So in when I started this work in the 2010s, um, there was way more local food activity in Kansas City than you would expect for a city of this size. Uh, We had um, proliferation of farmers markets, of community gardens, um, of schoolyard gardens at almost every school in the city, of uh, nonprofits that form urban orchards and places where folks can go pick food, of farm to table restaurants, of nonprofits that promote um, local urban farming within the city and helping folks learn how to run a farm business. And then of farm to table restaurants that are interested in buying that produce, um, you know, farm tours and all this sort of like activity and excitement around what it might mean to grow food in the city and how that can permeate all sorts of sectors. So not just trying to prop up um, small business owners, you know, not trying to, trying to start local food businesses, but also trying to say, okay, well, here's a way we can feed the poor. Here's the way we can engage kids and get them outside. So, urban food projects really like um, proliferating in all these spheres of thinking about how to influence our city, uh, which is what made it really interesting to me to study this project here, where it's a very racially segregated history. And as I mentioned, there's a long history of. Um, black and brown folks leading in this movement as well.
0: You talk about the displacement of uh, communities of color through the green development. Share with the audience what you found.
1: Yeah, uh, a key thing that I find um, that's consistent with what other researchers have highlighted in other cities is that the green urban development, development spurs gentrification. Um, so meaning that it displaces um It displaces existing community members who stand to gain the most from proximity to those projects. And I find that happening pretty obviously in Kansas City um, by looking at housing values and rent in areas where these projects are occurring and by listening to community stories of neighborhood change. Um, But importantly, you know, I find that that's not a new process. Communities of color have been repeatedly displaced for the creation of green space since Kansas City's inception as a city. Um, And that happened nationally as well. So national level movements, such as one called City Beautiful, they really took off in Kansas City around 1890s or so. And that was the idea that you could promote economic growth in cities through the elimination of urban eyesores, urban blight, and the creation of parks and green space. Um, So many of the parks in Kansas City today, um, beautiful parks that are sort of beloved and seen as institutions in our city, the creation of those parks involved the displacement and demolition of predominantly black, low-income communities of color. Um, And that is just not uh, often talked about in our narrative about our parks and green space in the city. And so that leads to a pervasive sense today for communities of color that their city is being built for white residents at the expense of their communities historically and today.
0: You talk about racial inequalities in the green space. Can you give us a few examples?
1: Yeah, I can share a couple. Um, So at the time, Kansas City was building parks for new white communities, right? So they're displacing and demolishing um, historically low-income black communities and then building parks to build up higher property values for white households. They were also installing municipal dumps in historically black neighborhoods. So um, Kansas City's uh, Jazz District at 18th and Vine um, was the turn of the 19th century, a really thriving black community. And at the time that it was thriving, Kansas City was installing dumps there. Um, So, and we also see that pattern today as well. There's lots written about where corporations decide to place um, CAFOs, contained animal feeding operations, which is often in historically black communities. Um, And apart from having like aesthetic impacts and impacts on housing values, we know that leads to differentials in quality of life between communities today. So all of that leads to greater heat and exacerbated effects of climate change in communities of color compared to white communities with established tree lines and things like that. So that's just one example of how we see inequities in green space.
0: In chapter one, tell us what you found about the history of urban violence in Kansas City.
1: Yeah, um, in that city, I really wanted to take a deep look and talk about what the history of our city looks like from the perspective of the most marginalized. And from that perspective, continual displacement and violence towards people of color um, has occurred to increase value for white elites. Um, And so in that chapter, I mostly talk about violence in terms of erasure, Um, not to gloss over the fact that there's a lot of um, physical racial violence in the history of our city as well, for me, what I wanted to focus on is how violent it can be to erase that story, that history, that presence and space in the city. Um, the fact that communities have been moved and demolished to create um, value for white investors. Uh, I think that's an underrecognized form of violence and particularly prevalent in Kansas City's narrative.
0: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to say for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Share with the audience what you found in Chapter 2.
1: Yeah, so following on that theme of violence and erasure, um, I sort of theorize in that chapter what other scholars have called white public space, sort of like a sanitized landscape that promotes white histories in space and erases violent histories and painful histories. Um, So dominant stories circulate around vacancy and blight in the urban core um, in historically black neighborhoods, but the histories of how those purposeful acts of violence against people of color um, that created that vacancy, those are erased. And so that leads to a landscape really legible to some and foreign and hostile to others. Um, And one example that I talk about in that chapter is centers on our Country Club Plaza, which is, if you know about Kansas City, um, we have a a very famous developer, JC Nichols, um, and he created Country Club Plaza. It's a Spanish-style open-air shopping district um, and just a couple blocks away from the foundation where I work actually, and um, full of all the name brand shopping stores. Um, But to get that land, he claimed um, a blacks only park, um, bought land from an African American hog farmer. And then when he created the Country Club Plaza, which was built using the labor of um, African Americans and immigrants, the shopping district was only open to white store owners. So then this vehicle that became a mechanism for many small business owners and emerging department stores to gain value was whites only restricted. And this whole history of what the space had meant before is erased. Um, And the violence I think of that narrative continues today when none of that is uplifted about the history of our downtown of this big economic engine and what it could have been for, For many others in Kansas City if it had been equitably created.
0: Tell us about Matt and the urban gardens and the food deserts.
1: Yeah, so I think we're talking about chapter four. Um, And so in that chapter, I really focus on how this dominant white ideology about local food movements um, permeates our understandings of food aid in the city. Um, and I th- it has a really big impact. And so I start that chapter um, relaying a scene I witnessed um, in a television clip about an urban farm tour. Uh, and the interviewer is talking with a, uh, a gardener, um, an elderly black man who's at a community garden. And so he's chatting with him, you know, because he's trying to gather some momentum and excitement around this urban farms tour that's going to happen in Kansas City. And in this interview, he says, you know, how did you get into this? And the man says, oh, you know, I lived in a, I I, I was enslaved and I lived in a slave camp. And so, of course, I know how to grow food. And I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it right in front of me. Um. But the man says, you know, that's great. At least you're here now. And you know how to grow food and you can get outside and get some sunshine. And, you know, the interview goes on, he says, you know, food is such a common language. And actually, I think that's really illustrative of the fact that it's not a common language. People have very different histories and interactions with food and the act of growing it. it doesn't always fall neatly along race. Um, but everybody has some of these unique experiences. Some of them are very painful. Um, and so in the rest of the chapter, I discuss how in many of our food aid programs in Kansas City, um, and much food aid is taken by elderly folks um, within our city and nationally, um, people, grandparents who might be caring for the rest of their family. Uh, food aid involves telling them how to grow their own food um, and telling them how to cook things that are really painful for people who come from different histories and different experiences with food and agriculture. Um, And so digging into some of that, I think, really highlights how difficult it is um, to roll out an aid program like that when you're only looking at it through a particular racialized history.
0: Now, in Chapter 5, you talk about networks. Tell us about the networks in Kansas City.
1: Yeah, in that chapter, I try to think about what it looks like to use urban farming as a um, as a small business as a that this would be the way you make your income. Um, and that chapter in particular was about the experiences of Black urban farmers in Kansas City, and what their experience was like navigating a primarily white local food network. Um, and networks are everything in. I, th- I think most industries, right? And local food um, economy is no different. And and those networks are really racialized and they can have a big impact on somebody's success. Uh, so just for example, um, some things I highlighted in that chapter to illustrate this problem and the experiences of black urban farmers. Um, so to get restaurant contracts, uh, a urban gardener or an urban farmer, Um, often sees a restaurant contract as a really great thing for their business. It can be more stable um, and pay a higher price than you might get at a farmer's market. But to get a restaurant contract, you often need to be friends with a chef at a restaurant. Um, And that's because, you know, chefs like their food grown in very particular ways. Maybe they like a very young green for their burgers or they like a particular kind of spiciness to another item. So knowing some of these things are like really specific to cultivating that relationship with a chef, knowing how that chef likes his produce grown and having that um, close conversation. But something I heard from many black urban growers was how do they enter this situation if they see that chef is saying really racist and harmful things? That's not somebody that they're able to be friends with, not somebody that they want to be friends with. It then makes it really hard to even enter that economy if many of the places you would make the most money require you to um, step back in your values or or to enter into situations that make you feel uncomfortable. So that's one example of, of ways we don't see how racialized that whole local food economy is. Um, and some of the ways that those networks in Kansas City, being predominantly white, um, ends up disadvantaging a lot of growers of color.
0: Now, in Chapter 6, you talk about the RHNC.
1: Tell us, what
0: is that and how does it work?
1: Yeah, so that chapter, RHNC is a made-up acronym. Um, I try to use pseudonyms wherever possible. So I was referring to Rose Hill Neighborhood Council, but again, that's a made-up name for an actual neighborhood council that I worked with during my research. Um, And in that chapter, um, I'm really documenting, you know, this active neighborhood council They work to provide community in in a very low-income community, right? In a community identified as a food desert. Uh, In that community, they work to provide, you know, on-the-ground input into their programming. They want a lot of programs for local benefit. But what I tried to document about them is that, you know, I think like many organizations, they are stuck between the funder and the public interest and community need. Um, And many funders we're interested in seeing them start community gardens and farmers markets and encourage local food production. But the need that they were hearing at the time of my research from community was around things like internet access and transport and full service groceries, things like that. And how they balance that is really tricky, you know, because working on a shoestring budget, um, you're sort of at the behest of the funders and the funders interests. And I think it's really Indicative of how we put intermediaries like that in a rough place when we impose our desires on communities We don't know anything about Um, So for example funders were really thinking that folks in this community had no idea about growing their own food and We're continually coming to this neighborhood council leadership and saying we want to help you start community gardens here When in actuality many folks in this community do grow food, but in their backyards, right? Because that's just a little bit of time saved if you can go into your backyard to like water a tomato plant versus taking a bus line or walking 10 blocks to get to the community garden, um, that's just not as feasible. Um, And they would also prefer a full service, affordable grocery store. And so some of these ideas about like what local food means uh, filtered through this white dominant history are just landing in this neighborhood council and making it very difficult for them to navigate and stay true to what the community itself needed.
0: You know, you talk about the vacant lots in Kansas City. What are they doing with those lots?
1: Yeah, that's sort of a through line through the book is, you know, there's a lot of, like many other Rust Belt cities, Kansas City isn't quite Rust Belt, but it shares a lot of similarities Um, where land has been really devalued um, and houses haven't been maintained. There's a lot of vacancy. Um, And that poses a lot of problems, right, for the tax bases of lower-income communities, um, for creating space for crime, um, and also simply, like, cities don't like it. That's a lot that they have to m- mow or maintain or monitor. Um, so it's a problem. Um, but one thing, the through line about vacancy that I try to talk about is how that's um, viewed by folks from, with different positionalities within the city. So in Chapter 7, one thing I really dig into um, was a movement that was happening, you know, in the 2010s in Kansas City where Black leaders, um, not necessarily farmers, not necessarily farmers who were interested in farming, but Black leaders who, who were buying vacant lots to sort of try and flip the script on who is legible in our city. So as speculative developers and upper middle class white folks are buying land, you know, there's an organized movement for Black farmers and Black folks who were learning about farming to buy land as well, particularly areas with, you know, painful or important histories for their communities. So land at 18th and Vine um, in particular, and other areas where land has historically been divested from Black folks. Um, So trying to gain that back and, and using that space to, like I said, begin to be legible on city land. A lot of Black farmers I spoke with were were telling me that they were actually growing cotton on their farms just to make folks in the community uncomfortable, to make that history really um, prevalent in space. So referencing histories of trying to destroy African-American people that have land, that was also pretty uh, prominent in my interviews because of how powerful that can be. So for folks um, claiming vacant lots, claiming space, that was seen as a really um, powerful movement.
0: Tell us about the future of greening. What do you see?
1: Um, I have a couple thoughts. And one, I'll reference sort of what I closed the book with. Um, there was a panel I helped host at the end of my research, you know, alongside a diverse set of farmers and growers in the city. Um, and so we hosted a panel to uplift some of these findings, right? Like, what does vacancy mean? Um to Black farmers, to Latino farmers, what, um, how is the history of the city felt differently by different folks, um, and how do we see our contributions acknowledged or not? Um, so this panel was hosted with the intent of, you know, trying to reach folks maybe working at some of these white dominant institutions in the city. Um, to, to expose them to a new way of thinking. And it really didn't go well, which I write about in chapter eight. And I think that says a little bit about what it might take to change minds and make sure that the future of our greening efforts in cities is really equitable. Um, so some of the responses you know we got during this panel were, you know what are you talking about? I don't see a white movement in the local food system. I see a diverse movement. Um, And some of those comments, I know other scholars of racism have written about this, you know, comments about diversity, like serve to cover up who actually is receiving resources and support and who holds power. Um, And I think that's where we need to move. We need to move to deeper conversations like that in order to affect lasting change. And so that involves like critically interrogating the way power operates in this movement, um, making sure we engage across difference much more often, Um, that we're cognizant of whose histories are presented in the policies and the work we're doing, particularly around greening, and that we're making sure that we're widening that table as much as possible for other histories and other narratives.
0: Now, what is the message you would like the reader to leave with once they finish your book?
1: I think I want people to look at their cities and their spaces differently. Um, I... You know, my entryway into this work was feeling how I felt marginalized in a space and then wondering what were the different experiences of others other than me and seeing how others who hold much more systemically marginalized positions have experienced this space. And I hope that's something we as a society all get better um, at doing. Um, Thinking about in our cities and in our social movements, who is visible and who isn't. Um, I hope my readers are curious about why, and they're curious about learning history that may be uncomfortable for them. And I think whether you're involved in the local food space or not, I think the book helps highlight how the history of our communities and our social movements are much richer than most of us imagine, and the importance of knowing and incorporating those histories into our work if we want our programs to be equitable going forward.
0: Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on?
1: Thank you. I have really appreciated chatting with you. Um, As I said, you know, I'm not in academia right now, so I have much less time for my own writing. Um, But I am pursuing some more deep thinking around how fat phobia and harmful narratives around bodies and health show up in local food spaces. So that might be part of my next work.
0: Sounds like a great plan. Again, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much.